Welcome to Discovering You, a podcast that explores the intricacies of personality and how it impacts the way we navigate through life. What will you discover today? Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining me on the second part of our exploration into what it means to be an HSP. Hi, Heather. Hello. How's your mood? Did you check your mood meter? I did check my mood meter. So I'll be honest, this time I clicked low energy, pleasant. Okay. And my word is thoughtful, which was interesting. I love how it gets to the word. Yeah. Going through it, I'm like, that's the one. It's not chill. It's thoughtful. <laughs> but they're very close on the meter. Yeah, that's interesting how sometimes they're close, but they have entirely different meanings, right? Yeah. What's your mood today? <laughs> yeah, this is different. So I am high energy today and I can probably tell you why. And I'm just <laughs> laughing because I really didn't know. So I basically put my finger on the top quadrant and I kind of put it around the middle. I'm like, we'll see which side this goes. I just feel very high energy for me. So if I go to the side, that's the red side. The word I get is jittery. So you might take a guess <laughs> as to what's happened. And on the right hand side, the word that's resonating with me for the pleasant energy is upbeat. I feel like I'm between upbeat and jittery. And when I really read into it, what the description of jittery was, I was like, oh, I don't know, because it said something about being edgy. And I'll be honest, and those of you listened to the last episode, guess what happened? <laughs> Get some coffee. I had a second <laughs> dose of caffeine, everyone, and we know what happens there. And it was a little bit inadvertent. I won't even go into the details, but needless to say, my hands are a little bit shaky as they get when I when I have it, but I feel super, <laughs> super energetic. So we're going to have to slow down the speed of your talking <laughs> with oh, this God. episode. <laughs> yes, apologies in advance if you're like, well, I'm used to how Victoria normally sounds, but what? You know, check your speed. We're going to listen on half speed this time. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be really aware. I'm going to slow down. That's where my mood meter is. Again, a reminder, if you're listening and you don't know what the heck we're talking about, check out. You can Google mood meter. It's Mark Bracket, permission to feel. Any of those kinds of words, it will help you just take a moment for self-awareness, plot how you're feeling, and it will really help you kind of go into every interaction you're having intentionally and thoughtfully and so that you're doing your part, let's say, so that if there is a misunderstanding or something goes weird, if you go into that knowing maybe you're a little bit off kilter, that might help you in terms of how you react to the situation. The app is really cool. It is really cool. And if you're someone who doesn't like to use apps, you can also do this without the app. I did it without the app for so long. You can literally just go and plot your coordinates in these quadrants of high energy, low energy, pleasant, unpleasant. And it's a very similar process. Don't have to use the app if you don't want to. Before we dive into our topic, here is today's disc analogy. We are a few days away from National Cocktail Day. So of course, I'm going to break down disc according to cocktails. For high D, I chose Manhattan. The summary I found on a recipe list described it as strong in all ways, with some slight bitterness, and not for the faint of heart. For high eye, mojito, fun, refreshing, vacation vibes. High S, gin fizz. Okay, I know this sounds bubbly, but it's actually described as being silky smooth. 
whipped egg whites contribute to its slick texture. High C is a classic martini. Precision is key in making this drink, especially in measuring the equal parts of dry and sweet vermouth. Who wants a cocktail now? (laughs) I kind of do. Heather, what would be your cocktail of choice? So it's hilarious because I have never had a Manhattan, a gin fizz, or a classic (laughs) martini, but I will take a mojito any day. Mm. And I have literally a negative eye. (laughs) (laughs) Which I understand that's not what it means because the same thing happened to me when we did like chai lattes. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a chai latte. And then I was like, I'm not a chai latte. I'm glad you said that. So for any new listeners we have who aren't used to what this is about, when I'm saying it, it doesn't mean that, let's say, oh, I like the high eye drink, therefore I have to be a high eye. What I'm doing is I'm explaining the essence of it and I'm comparing that to the characteristics of that disc factor. I also don't have a high eye and I love mojitos as well. I want to be the person who drinks a Manhattan, not going <laughs> to lie, but I don't know that I'll ever be able to. Yeah, well, I like an old fashioned, which is kind of similar, but I think the old fashioned is a little sweeter. That's Chris's favorite cocktail. And I had to Google what a gin fizz was. I didn't even know what a gin fizz was. I like a gin and tonic, but I was kind of looking to see anything. And then I, I read that one. And then, the, of course, the words jumped out at me. And I thought, ah, OK, that that explains it. So, yeah, I may have to just experiment with all of these. <laughs> well, National Cocktail Day, we got to get on that. Check out our second podcast on <laughs> mixology. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to get carried away with this. Did you know that Canada has a national cocktail? I did not know that. Do you want to take a guess at what it might be? So it has something to do with maple syrup? No, just kidding. I don't know. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't even have a guess. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily have guessed it, but it's the Caesar. Really? So bloody Caesar. Yeah. Apparently, it was discovered uh, in the bar at a Calgary hotel in 1969. Nice. And I think what makes it distinctly Canadian, I know this because I lived in the U.S. for a number of years, and they don't have it there. They have a Bloody Mary. They don't have Clamato juice, right? That's what it is. Yes, that's what it comes down to. Exactly. Okay, back to our topic. In part one, I touched on the concept of HSP and some ways to identify if you or someone close to you might be one. We'll have another quick look at that. But today I'm going to focus on what happens after you know. What are the next steps? How do you take this newfound awareness and ensure that you use it as a superpower and not as a limitation as others, or even you, may have seen it? As a quick reminder, the word sensitive is not referring to being emotional. It's about reacting to stimulation. HSPs are more easily stimulated by noises, lights, pain, hunger, because of their high levels of SPS, sensory processing sensitivity. Since HSPs represent only 20 to 30% of the population, the world really isn't set up to accommodate it. So make sure you understand what you need to thrive and protect that superpower. Last time I presented a reduced 10-question version of the full HSP quiz. If you haven't listened to part one, here's another 10 questions to help determine your level of sensitivity. If you did the first one, see if this further confirms your initial score or mitigates it. Okay, ready, set, go. Number one, I am conscientious. Number two, I am deeply moved by the arts or music. Number three, I startle easily. 
Number four, when people are uncomfortable in a physical environment, I tend to know what needs to be done to make it more comfortable. For instance, changing lighting or seating. Five, I get annoyed when people try to get me to do too many things at once. Six, I become unpleasantly aroused when a lot is going on around me. Seven, I notice and enjoy delicate or fine scents, tastes, and sounds. Eight, I make it a high priority to arrange my life to avoid overwhelming situations. Nine, I find myself needing to withdraw during busy days to a quiet place where I can have privacy and relief from stimulation. And 10, I tend to be very sensitive to pain. How did you score on this one, Heather? Okay, so interestingly, I scored six out of 10. Okay. But for number 10, I <laughs> tend to be very sensitive to pain. Oh, gosh. I'm not sensitive to my own pain, but I'm very sensitive to it in others or animals or like watching TV. Mm. So I don't know. Well, it's interesting that you pointed that one out because I am the same. This one stumped me. It's actually the reason I didn't include it the first time. And then I was like, no, I got to get into this. I think it depends on how one interprets the word sensitive in relation to pain. I think I'm confused because in the past, I've been told that I have a high threshold for pain. But I guess that doesn't mean that I don't feel the pain, right? It may just come down to, I think, a stoic expression of it. If I'm thinking of it being very aware of like a subtle physical change within my body or like symptoms, then yes, definitely. I think I'm definitely hyper aware of that. What would you say about that for you? Okay, well, now that you talk about it like that, that makes a lot of sense. I think I have a relatively high threshold to pain, but I do notice the littlest things. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what it's getting at. So then probably in reality, then... (laughs) We answered that one. So for me, I'm 9 out of 10, maybe 10 out of 10. So this is not really getting any different for me. (laughs) Listeners, did your score remain the same with these latest questions? If you've reconfirmed your high level of sensitivity or that of a loved one, this next part will help you understand, harness, and move forward successfully. In her book, The Highly Sensitive Person, Elaine Aaron says that there is a fourfold approach to understanding and applying your HSP trait. The first is self-knowledge. Thoroughly explore what being an HSP means to you, how it fits with your other traits, and how society's negative attitude may have affected you. Start paying attention to your body's feelings, its reactions, and stop ignoring signals that you may have deemed as weak. The second step is reframing. This involves re-examining your past with your newfound knowledge and looking upon it in a different light. This can feel like you're opening a can of worms, but ideally it will feel cathartic because now you have the understanding and you can see that certain, quote, failures were inevitable because you, your family, teachers, friends, didn't understand you. Aaron says that reframing how you experienced your past can help improve your self-esteem, which is really important because solid self-esteem helps decrease over-arousal in new and highly stimulating situations. Healing is the third stage in this process. After you've reframed past experiences, it's important to extend compassion to yourself for enduring some undoubtedly painful events from a childhood where you felt different, misunderstood, 
and lacked what you truly needed. Erin provides some exercises in her book to assist in the healing process, so you should check these out. The fourth step is learning skills to balance stimulation levels when out in the world. This also means knowing when to be less out if necessary. At this point, you may be feeling that having high sensitivity is a hindrance and something you need to hide under the rug. Allow me to illuminate what's great about it. Having a stronger awareness of subtleties makes you more intuitive, almost like a sixth sense. HSPs tend to be visionaries, intuitive artists, inventors, as well as highly conscientious, able to concentrate deeply, of course, only if there aren't too many distractions, good at tasks requiring vigilance, accuracy, and detection of minor differences, able to process material to deeper levels of semantic memory, extremely creative. And more positives. While some studies report that HSPs feel more stressed at work, they are viewed as being more productive by their managers. Highly sensitive people have been found to have strong entrepreneurial intention. They are skilled at recognizing opportunities, which comes from their depth of processing, awareness of subtle stimuli, and creativity, and they are motivated to be self-employed and manage their own energy and resources. Aaron says that self-employment is a logical route for HSPs because they can control the hours, the stimulation, select the clients, and unlike many small first-time entrepreneurs, they will be conscientious about research and planning before taking risks. She does raise a flag and a little joke when she cautions that HSPs can be prone to be worriers and perfectionists, and that they themselves may be the hardest taskmaster they've ever worked for. Does this ring a bell, Heather? (laughs) I'm literally sitting here nodding my head. (laughs) I think it's relevant for both of us. I don't know if it's an either-or situation, but for me, totally, I see the worrier and the perfectionist. And for you, especially on yourself, I see more the taskmaster. Would you agree? Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. Additionally, HSPs have been found to make exceptional leaders. Aaron references John Hughes, an author on best practices for CEOs, for what makes their leadership unique. First, highly sensitive leaders notice what others miss and have a greater sense of what's happening on their team. HSPs soak in the subtleties, the nonverbal cues, sounds, emotions, it all gets taken in. Second, they prefer to process rather than quickly respond or take immediate action. Team members feel more valued as they are allowed to speak and contribute freely, and the leader takes a back seat and lets them shine. And third, they exhibit resonant leadership, which refers to their innate ability to feel deeply, process richly, and patiently consider the right words for the moment at hand. This comes really naturally to them. I do want to mention another thing that Elaine Aaron advises. As you're accumulating all of this new information and knowledge, you're likely to see it everywhere and talk about it a lot at first. It's a good idea to have some awareness about that. Gradually, it will settle in and you'll probably be talking about it less. So you may want to set expectations for your loved ones who may grow weary of it. I may or may not be talking about my own family here. Also, there's a new book coming out just as we're recording this, and I'm really excited to read it. It's by Jen Graneman and Andre Solo. They have a site if you want to read more and access their resources. It's highlysensitiverefuge.com. 
And on this site, there's a helpful article which highlights activities that are known to drain energy, which of course, HSPs are very susceptible to. I'm going to read out nine energy leaks, and you may find it helpful to pinpoint which ones affect you most. Then you can take steps to avoid them or put strategies in place to help you through them. Number one, not being able to say no. Two, having no clear boundaries. Three, shouldering everyone's burdens and emotions. Four, having too many things on your to-do list. Five, not getting enough sleep. Six, having a messy home or office space. Seven, trying to explain your sensitivity to people. Eight, having shallow conversations. Nine, being surrounded by people. Do any of these sound familiar? Which ones stand out for you, Heather? A bunch of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So I would say of the nine, I have maybe three that don't stand out for me. And we've talked about them before in other scenarios, but I actually really thrive having a lot of things on my to-do list. (laughs) Yep. Low S. They need to be organized. I have a list and it is constantly evolving as the day goes on. There's something about me. I like accomplishing a lot of those types of things. Yep. Not getting enough sleep. I don't even recognize that. And I've had a couple of days when I wasn't feeling well earlier in the month that I didn't get enough sleep. I just really can feel for people who are insomniacs or even are light sleepers. Like I'm a heavy sleeper. I can sleep anywhere. I can sleep standing up in a busy airport. There's nothing about it. Amazing. I recognize that A, as a superpower for me, but it doesn't affect me this way. And then we've talked about it a little bit. You and I talked about it earlier. The trying to explain your sensitivity to people. I don't even know that I even recognized it enough to know that it needed to be something that was part of a conversation until recently. And I would say almost until this year where I'm starting to make changes that affect the way I interact with people, right? Where, you know, you and I connecting and doing the podcast, taking into consideration all these different aspects of your life. So I don't know that prior to now I would have even bothered explaining it. So I'm curious about that because do you ever wonder or worry that you will be misunderstood in those situations? So you're you're not saying anything, but do you worry about maybe the inadvertent signals you're sending off by being in that situation? I think I'm a bit at a crossroads. So I think up until now, I didn't say anything. And I didn't set boundaries and I always said yes and that type of thing. Where now I'm not just going through the motions of everything to appease everyone around me. I had a message on the way here. Just need to jump on a quick call with you. It'll take two seconds. And I was like, nope, I'm not available today because I have this podcast and then I have another call booked after. And that is the extent of what I'm going to be capable of doing well today. Yeah. And so I just said no. Never in my life before would I have ever said. I would have just said, yeah, just call me. I'm driving. I'll be. Uh, and because when I was driving, that was the time I was putting into thinking about this show, mm-hmm. this episode, and knowing what we're talking about and processing. Because this is a part two, making sure that my thoughts were in order from part one to be able to keep going with part two. And I would have normally... And it's not even for myself, but I would have hijacked the effort I would have put into this to talk to them. Boundary setting for sure. So that's very new 
for me though. Like I would normally just go through all the motions and then not do anything well. Okay. Okay. So that's a fair point. So then I guess what I'm curious about, and I'm only asking because I know this is a particular sensitive point for me, is having done that, having said no, and just setting that boundary, do you have any worry or fear of their reaction to that and maybe misconstruing what that behavior they were seeing in you is really about? Not now. Not having said no. Okay. Started this year where I'm not going to let other people dictate what my work looks like. Okay. And I think I probably talked about this in the very first episode of this. That this is part of what draws me to do this is, you know, I can't stand when I either see a misunderstanding transpiring around me or if I think something I am saying or doing is not connecting, that somebody is having a different impression. I just become almost obsessed with making sure that they understand the intention of it. And it's one of those things that comes into what we're talking about, about having like the rich, complex inner life. Like HSPs are people that will like lie in bed at night and go over conversations or interactions and think, oh, I wonder if they thought I meant that. Or, oh, do you think that the reaction was to when I said this? Or And I, I'll chat with my friends about it. <laughs> I'll say, what are you talking about? No. So I get this is a particular thing of mine. You know, I'm asking for me, but I'm also asking for our listeners too, who maybe are in a phase where they are learning to set boundaries, honor their traits of either being highly sensitive or being an introvert or whatever it is, just understanding how to, I guess, navigate that successfully and lean into it. They all resonated with me, no surprise because of how highly I score on this. For me, if I had to pick three, mine would be, okay, opposite to you, actually, having too many to-dos, you know, that really overwhelms me, not getting enough sleep, need my sleep, and explaining my sensitivity to people. So it's interesting because I know you mentioned that it doesn't even occur to you to do it, so you just don't, you don't do it, but then, you know, you put yourself in situations that maybe aren't super comfortable, and then, of course, that's a massive energy drain. So for me... Like I often worry, <laughs> here's about me being obsessed with what people are thinking and making sure nobody's misunderstanding it. But I worry that people think I'm being a princess about things that really are just necessities for me to function comfortably. So for instance, and this happened when we had lunch, if I'm meeting someone for lunch and it's really sunny, I can't sit facing the window or I'll develop a migraine. The nice thing is I'm super comfortable with you and you know these things, so I have no problem saying it. But it's not that way with everybody. Or if I'm having a conversation and there's like a lot of crosstalk or really loud music, I can't focus on what's being said and it makes me really anxious. Even now, after I've learned so much more about this trait and have the language to explain it, I'm still reluctant to make a request that could be seen as being demanding. I often struggle through loud music and attempt conversations instead of just saying, would you mind turning down the music, please? And, you know, I'm recalling a time where I was at someone's house for a get-together, and there was a really strong candle. And even though I knew it would trigger a physical reaction to me, I was reluctant to say anything. And instead, I felt sick from it, and I had a migraine by the end of the visit. And I wish I could say this was an isolated incident, but there have been countless times where I've done this. And honestly, I would be more comfortable 
almost leaving because I don't want to inflict my issues on everyone else. That's really how I feel. But then I think that would be worse because they'd either think I'm rude or then I hurt their feelings or they feel guilty. It's so hard. So you can see I'm still a work in progress. And this leads me to make a public service announcement on behalf of HSPs. If we're making a request such as removing a candle or opening a window, please know that this isn't something that's said lightly or without intense deliberation. A lot of worry and weighing of pros and cons has likely occurred. And it's a double whammy of distress. First, that we can't just be as carefree as other people and ignore stimuli because it causes pain and discomfort. And second, we have to get even more uncomfortable by drawing attention to ourselves and risk hurting feelings and being mislabeled as difficult or demanding. There's definitely a fine balance here. I think we've all encountered someone who seemingly has no trouble asking for things, and perhaps not in the nicest manner. But I'm hoping we can recognize the difference and try to see it from another perspective. HSPs, one of the most important things you can do is to take control of your environment. Monitor what's going on with your nervous system. This is an opportunity to do your mood reader. If you have a big meeting or event coming up, it may be wise to reduce or eliminate caffeine. (laughs) Don't do what I did today. Take some quiet time to walk or meditate. And here are some general tips going forward. Know your boundaries before getting into a potentially charged situation. Plan breaks and downtime for each day. Have a regular bedtime routine. Surround yourself with people who understand and support you. And avoid those who deplete you. It's time for a listener question. Okay. Thank you, Victoria, for bringing this subject to light. I didn't score as an HSP, but I think one of my team members is. Do you have any advice on the best way to manage a highly sensitive person? Thanks for this question. And I love that you're interested in making the effort to understand and connect with your team member. I think if you're aware of the environment that they're in, this will help you get in tune with their feelings. If you recognize that it's noisy or crowded or lots of distractions, you can imagine that they will be feeling overstimulated. If possible, there should be opportunities for a quiet space or some flexibility with them taking a couple of breaks for some downtime. HSPs don't perform as well when they are being observed, so standing over their shoulder while they're working on a task is not a good idea. Similarly, they don't react well to being put on the spot, so asking them for a quick answer, especially publicly, will not bring out their best and will likely rattle them. Be mindful that they are unlikely to self-promote, and they will be hoping that their diligence and hard work will be noticed on its own merit. As a manager or leader, it's easy to overlook someone who's not front and center and drawing attention to themselves. So you may have to look a little harder and notice the subtleties. Thank you for a truly thoughtful question. Communicate, connect, close workshop. Did you know that effective communication is one of the biggest predictors of sales success? This fun, interactive, and informative session shows you how to customize your interactions with prospects and clients. Using role-play scenarios, you'll learn techniques to make deeper connections and ultimately close transactions. If you are interested in connecting with Victoria for team building, strategic onboarding, coaching, or speaking engagement, you can contact her at discoverwhatworks at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Remember, 
send in your questions to be featured on a future episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app.